Howdy, everybody. Glad that you are here. As we continue on with the study of the history of Christianity, we are on part 20. We're going to talk today about a group called the Great Cappadocians. We're going to look in depth today as to what these people did and why they were so significant. And just as a reminder, we are continuing looking at the struggle against Arianism. Arianism was the belief that Jesus was a created being. He's not equal to God. He's not divine. He was not eternal. He was a special creation. He didn't just come into being when he was born. He was preexistent, but not eternal and not on the same equality as God the Father. You can see from that that this is a very important thing to nail down theologically, and it is amazing to look at the history of this, how close we really came to that actually being the position of the church, the, the Arianism position, that Jesus is not divine. Thankfully, that didn't win out. We know that from history. We know that from theology today. And we're looking in depth as to why that happened. In this group, the great Cappadocians had a lot to do with that. As you can probably imagine, this group came from an area called Cappadocia. That is a region in Asia Minor, and it would be in what is now modern-day Turkey, a very important area in the history of Christianity. If you read in the New Testament, we know that there were letters addressed to churches in this area, and one in particular that addressed several churches in this area on a mail route, and that's the book of Revelation. The writer John wrote to the churches that were in Asia Minor. So this is an area that has a lot of rich history, and it continues to do so here as this is located Cappadocia in what is modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor. This region, there were three church leaders, and they became known collectively as the Great Cappadocians. Obviously, not called that in their day, but since their day, because of what they contributed. One of the guy's names is Basil of Caesarea. He was a theologian and became known as the Great, so Basil the Great of Caesarea. He was one of the great Cappadocians. He had a brother named Gregory of Nessa, and he was famous for his work on mystical contemplation. We won't talk a whole lot about that today, but that's one of the things that he really did a lot of work on and had a lot of writings on in his own discipline. And then we have the third guy, Gregory of Nazianzus. He was a poet, an orator, and composer of many hymns that have become classics in the Greek-speaking church and still sung to this day. So he was not related to the other two, Basil and the other Gregory, but was actually friends with Basil. We'll get into more of that in a little bit. But before we move on to really looking in depth into these guys, there was a fourth influential member of this group, not officially considered to be one of the great Cappadocians, but this person is the sister of Basil and Gregory of Nyssa. And her name is Macrina. Macrina was very important in the religious development of her brothers. Really had a lot of influence on them that got them to the place that they were so that they could make the contributions that they did. So it's important for us to look at the life of Macrina before we move on to look at the other three. So the family of Macrina, Basil, and Gregory had very deep Christian roots going back at least two generations. There may have been more. We just don't know. But at least two. We know some information about their grandparents and they certainly were christians so we know that their roots were deep in christianity macrina was actually engaged at the age of 12 in our day that's very young and her day is not uncommon at all that was the the norm but something happened her fiance died close to the time that they were going to be married and it was an unexpected death 
this really shook Macrina, and she decided that that was it. Her groom had died. She wasn't going to go looking for another one. She vowed at that very time to keep herself celibate and to live a life of contemplation. She had a brother named Necratius, and her brother died at the, around the same time that her father died. So Macrina was kind of set up as the one who consoled her family for Basil and Gregory as they mourned the death of their brother and their father. And during this time of mourning, she led her family to thoughts of the joys of religious life. She was a big influence on her brothers when it came to their religious life and the passion that they held for their faith. Really, that she was a, a huge driving force in that for them. Macrina extolled the virtues of living an ascetic life. She was attracted to this after the death of her fiancé, and she had a lot of influence on her brothers in this area. She encouraged her brother Basil to go to Egypt in order to learn more about the monastic life. And he did that very thing. Later on, when he came back, Basil became the great teacher of monasticism in the Greek-speaking church. He was known as the father of monasticism, but really you can look at Macrina as being the one that may have been the driving force behind monasticism coming into the Greek-speaking church because of her influence on Basil to go and, and to learn these things. Macrina spent the rest of her life in monastic retreat, and she actually had her mother and some other women go with her, and they started a community for women. Her fame was such that she became known simply as the teacher. So she had a lot of influence on her brothers, on her family. They would probably not have gotten to the point that they were in their religious life without her influence, and then she certainly was a very influential person in her own right, starting the community for women that she did, and then also being known as the teacher because of her great influence in teaching religious matters. So it's very appropriate that we remember her as well as being a driving force when it came to the influence of the great Cappadocian. So we'll start now with the guys that actually are considered a part of this group, and we'll start with Basil the Great. After contemplating his study in Egypt, remember, Basil was sent to Egypt by his sister to learn the monastic life. He went there. He spent some time in Palestine as well. He came back home and he settled near where his sister's area was. And there, Basil and his friend Gregory founded a monastic community for men. So he kind of started the same kind of group that his sister did with the women. He started one for the men right there, very close to hers. When Valens, who was an Arian, became emperor, Basil was called on by the bishop of Caesarea to assist him in the struggle against Arianism. This bishop of Caesarea was not really that big of a buddy with Basil. They didn't really get along too well. And Basil had kind of just, he wanted to be left alone, so it wasn't too big a deal. He wasn't trying to get in any kind of powerful positions. But when this threat of Arianism became very real again, the Bishop of Caesarea knew that Basil was an ally in this area, that he was not for Arianism. So he called on him to help him in this struggle, and so they did. When that bishop died, Basil was elected to succeed him as Bishop of Caesarea. Basil didn't want the position. He didn't seek it out, but he felt obligated to take it, and so he did. It wasn't long after that that Emperor Valens planned a visit to Caesarea to help strengthen Arianism. Remember, this is the guy that came in that wanted to try to reinforce Arianism in the empire. He would go into communities and he would try to strengthen the Arian parties there. He picked Caesarea as a place that was important to do that, knowing there was opposition there from it. Knowing that there was opposition there by the church leadership in Caesarea, 
He made this plan. Of course, they knew what was coming. He attempted to subdue Basil with a combination of promises and threats. But Basil's not a guy that's going to be subdued real easily. And he stood firm against the pressure of the emperor's imperial officers. He sent those officers ahead of him to try to make the road open for him to bring in his Arianism and to really strengthen the parties there. Basil wasn't having any of it. He stood firm against it and wouldn't back down. After the emperor left, Basil kind of got back to doing the things that he was interested in doing. And as a bishop, those things were he wanted to organize and spread the monastic life and then also to advance the Nicene cause. Remember the Council of Nicaea, we've talked about it a few times now. That is where Arianism was first declared to be heretical. We have the Nicene Creed as a result of that very thing, trying to fight Arianism. It's been disputed now, although the church had made a, a choice and there was a strong consensus that said Arianism was false, the emperor started getting involved from Constantine and then it just kind of ping-ponged back and forth from guys that were either not interested in Christianity at all or took one position or the other, the Nicene calls or the Arian calls. And Basil's one that certainly wanted to advance the Nicene calls, the orthodox position of the church that Jesus is God. And he did that. He spent a lot of his time doing that. Uh, and he did it through vast correspondence and also several theological treaties. Basil made significant contribution to the final victory of Trinitarian doctrine. He was a big influence on that. And again, the Trinity, you know what that is, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three in one. They're God collectively. They're also individuals. It's the idea of the Trinity. We know this. So Basil was a big early proponent of this and one that really helped to nail this down for the entire church and for orthodoxy and to put a stop to the all thought that there was something different being taught in scripture about who Jesus is and then also the Holy Spirit too. There were some that also didn't want to put the Holy Spirit on the same level as God the Father. So Basil was a big influence on this issue. Basil died a few months before the Council of Constantinople. Remember, this is the second ecumenical council that this actually got nailed down. And that council confirmed the Nicene Doctrine in AD 381. Uh, so we know that he didn't quite make it in time to see it, but he got right up to the, right up to the door. I mean, he almost got in. He died knowing that that cause was being championed and was going to be the official position of the church by those who were on his side and had the influence to do that. So he got to see kind of his victory. He didn't get to see the final official victory, but he did get very close. And he had a lot to do with this actually becoming the policy of the church and the theological teaching of the church. So now let's turn to look at Gregory of Nessa. Unlike his brother Basil, Gregory preferred silence, solitude, and anonymity. He wasn't the guy that was out there wanting to do a lot of talking and leading. He just kind of wanted to be left alone. He would have never been the one to try to take up a cause or be the voice of any cause, but he got pushed into it. Gregory married a young woman. He actually was married for a long time, so he didn't go straight to that monastic life. But years later, he, his wife died. It was very traumatic for him. And he did take up the monastic life and follow in the footsteps of his siblings after that. But at first, he actually was one, the only one of these siblings that was a married man. 
Gregory became known for his mystical life and for his writings on the topic, both describing it and giving instruction. That was his big contribution outside of what he did for the Nicene calls. He was very interested in the, the mystical part of the spiritual life. Basil forced Gregory to become Bishop of Nessa, which was little more than a village. He didn't want to do that either. He wanted to be left alone. He just wanted to study and read his books and write his stuff, and Basil put him in a position. He wanted him in leadership. But eventually, Basil died and also Emperor Valens. And when that happened, Gregory became one of the main leaders of the Nicene Party. Now, the, mentioning Emperor Valens is important because when Valens was really strongly pushing Arianism, Gregory actually was very intimidated and afraid of the emperor and his power, and he ran away and hid. He left his post, and he didn't want anything to do with it. But then once the emperor died, he felt a little bit braver about coming out and being a leader, but then also he saw his brother, when his brother died, he wanted to fill in that role that his brother had been playing. So he came out, you could look at him and say, well, I mean, look at this guy, he ran off and hid. Again, it's easy for us to sit here and point fingers at somebody that we're not in their shoes and we're not dealing with the same things they're dealing with. But he did stand up when he was needed. He helped a lot to advance this cause. Gregory's writings containing careful explications of Nicene doctrine were a major contributing factor to the triumph of the Nicene doctrine at the Council of Constantinople. A lot of what was being taught there, a lot of what was being confirmed there, came from this guy's writings. So he did have a big contribution to make, and it was the way he wanted to make it. He didn't want to be the vocal leader in front of the crowd, but he did want to be the guy in the background that was writing and could articulate what this theological position is. And so he made a great contribution in doing that. Eventually, Emperor Theodosius came in, and Emperor Theodosius was a, he championed the Nicene cause. So he took on Gregory as one of his main advisors in theological matters. And again, he forced Gregory to do a role he didn't want to do. He had to travel throughout the empire and teach and extol the virtues of the Nicene Creed and the Nicene doctrine, theology. He had a great contribution in doing that, but he did it begrudgingly. He didn't want to do it. Finally, Gregory got to go back to his monastic life, and he didn't, he got out. He didn't get. He wanted to go somewhere where he wouldn't be found. He wouldn't be bothered anymore with all this nonsense, and so he did. He withdrew, he withdrew so thoroughly that the date and circumstances of his death are unknown. We don't know when he died. We don't know how he died. We don't know anymore. He just he vanished. He got away, and that's what he wanted to do. So as all said and done, Gregory got to contribute what was important for him to contribute. And then finally, he got to be left to the life of solitude he'd always wanted, so much so that he died in obscurity. We don't know anything about it. I'm sure he'd be very pleased to know that that was the case. So then we have another Gregory. This is Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory was not related to the, to the other group. He was the son of the bishop of Nazianzus. He had religious roots going back in his life as well, in his family. In fact, several of Gregory's family would one day receive the title of saint. Gregory himself received that. His, also his parents, Gregory the Elder and Nona, his brother Caesareus, his sister Gorgonia, and his cousin Amphilochius as well. A lot of the members of his family took on this title of saint later on, so very influential in Christianity. Gregory met Basil in Athens, where they were both studying. They formed a friendship. When Gregory got back home from his studies, he joined Basil in the monastic life, so he wanted to join in with his friend. 
Unfortunately, they had a falling out. Basil made Gregory the bishop of a small hamlet, which Gregory resisted. He didn't want to do it. And it's put a strain on their friendship, and it never was resolved. They never did get back together and try to reunite to make up for the hurts that they had from each other. Gregory actually abandoned the church he was assigned to and went to retreat, into a quiet retreat. He did not want to do it. He felt forced to do it. He did do it for a little while, and he finally just said, you know what, I'm not doing this. I don't want to do it. And he abandoned the church. Not a great look, you know, when you when you think about it. Not a great look to abandon your, your church, your flock. On the other hand, it's also not good for a person to be put in a leadership role by force. And this is what happened to him. So he left. And while he was in that quiet retreat, he received the news of Basil's death. And this really, it really shook him because they never did resolve their issues. So I'm sure in Gregory's mind, and maybe even in the mind of Basil, they probably thought, you know, we're having problems and we're not able to resolve these right now, but eventually we'll get back together and we'll, we'll have a resolution. We'll come back together as friends, but that never did get to happen. And that affected Gregory very much. So the shock of Basil's death led Gregory to take a leading role in the struggle against Arianism. Just like Basil's brother, Gregory, they saw this gap of leadership when Basil was gone. And both of these guys wanted to step out into a role that they really weren't comfortable with. They didn't really want to take. They really, this Gregory, just like uh, Gregory, Basil's brother, they both wanted to just kind of be left alone and do their thing. But when they knew that somebody needed to fill that gap that Basil left, they both stood up and did it. So you got to give him respect for that. So Gregory started, when he took this leadership role, he got into it with these Arians. In AD 379, Gregory appeared in Constantinople. He knew he needed to come in, take this position that Basil had had, and so he did. He, he appears hit there. And at that time, Arianism had the entire support of the state. So right there in where the empire, the capital of the empire was, you're going to have a lot of Arians there. In fact, there's not one Orthodox church in the entire city. So Gregory didn't hide. He didn't shrink back. He went right to the heart of the of the battle. And he knew he needed to come in with his influence in, in this area for Orthodox Christianity. So Gregory began celebrating Orthodox services in the home of a relative. They wanted a church there that actually taught what was correct. And he did do that. But Gregory began, began to be attacked in the streets. It became known what he was doing. And as a matter of fact, on several occasions, there were Arian monks who broke into his services to profane the altar. Now, I haven't done a lot of digging to know exactly what they did to profane the altar. I'm kind of scared to know, so I'm not going to dig any further than any of that. But if you want to know more about it, you can look it up. Maybe you'll find out what they did. Whatever it was, man, that's a bad deal. Anytime you think you've got a religious cause that would lead you to bust into another church, and profane the altar, and this is a Christian church, then you're probably on the wrong track. There's probably something wrong with what you're trying to do. You may need to reevaluate that. It's a good sign that the Aryan position was not correct because the, the way the guys that championed it acted, they wanted to mix it up. They wanted to get into fights. They did stuff like this, just dirty stuff. But then late in AD 380, Emperor Theodosius took power, and that changed everything because he expelled all the Arians from the high positions they held in the church and the government. He got them out of there. Theodosius then made Gregory Bishop of Constantinople. Again, didn't want the position, didn't want to be the Bishop of Constantinople, but in this case, he goes along with it. He feels like he needs to do it to 
promote the Nicene tradition, what Orthodox Christianity teaches. So it happened that a few months later, Theodosius called for a council at Constantinople. This is the big ecumenical council where we've, we've talked about several times now where this decision was made about the Orthodox teaching. And because Gregory was the Bishop of Constantinople, he was the one who presided over this council, at least to start. But at the council, something happened. The Arian opponents came in and they had a little information that they were going to use on Gregory. And that was that he was already Bishop of another place. Remember, he had left the place he was supposed to be the Bishop. And they used that against him. So what did they think would happen from that? It would discredit him. So what did Gregory do? He just resigned. He said, that's fine. I didn't want to be Bishop of Constantinople. I don't want to be Bishop of the other place either. I didn't want to do either one. But it didn't matter. The Council of Constantinople still went on to reaffirm the doctrine of Nicaea, definitively proclaiming the doctrine of the Trinity. Not only did they clear up the theology, the teaching of the church about Jesus being divine, but as I mentioned earlier, there was also some that were pushing, well, the Holy Spirit's not God either. They actually nailed that down too. So this was the big this was the big council where the question of the doctrine of the Trinity got settled, became the orthodox official teaching of the church, and this guy Gregory was a big reason why all these guys, the great Cappadocians, were a big reason why this happened. The th decisions and theology of the council were largely the result of the work of the great Cappadocians. Absolutely true. Well, after this was over, Gregory returned to his homeland and spent his time composing hymns and doing the work of a pastor. He finally got to go back and do what he wanted to do, too. So happy ending for everybody involved there. And then Gregory lived a good long life. He died at around 60 years of age. When we look at these guys, the influence that they had on Orthodox theology and not in minor ways, not things that we could say, well, we can agree to disagree about this or you know, this has been controversial through the years, so we don't have to necessarily throw somebody out of the church over having a difference of opinion. That's not the issue here. This was the issue of whether or not Jesus, primarily whether Jesus is divine. The Holy Spirit got into the mix a little bit too. Who is God? What is the Trinity? What does it mean? Is God one, three, and one, or is he just one and then he created some other beings to kind of be special but not equal with him well the bible clearly teaches that god the father god the son and god the holy spirit are all divine you can't read it and really question that although it did get questioned i guess it still does today but it became the official position of the church this question was settled as far as that goes and this started a period of being able to really kind of move on beyond this so very important that this happened very very important and these guys and their sister, let's not forget her. She was kind of the driving force behind their lives and their, their devotion, at least for her brothers. This just can't be understated how important that is. So we owe a great debt to them. Let me give you just a little bit, very quickly, a rundown of what's to come. We've got over the next four chapters of this book I'm using for this study, we're going to look at four very important influential church, early church leaders during this time period. Uh, some of the names will be familiar to you. Some of them may not. That's okay. Uh, we're going to look at these guys. So that's four, possibly four lessons. I did look ahead a little bit, and at least a couple of the chapters are a little shorter. So there's a possibility that we may end up combining a couple, and then that way we would only end up having two or three lessons, but don't know that for sure yet. So possibly as many as four, maybe less. But we're going to look at all four of these guys regardless. And then we're going to move, we're going to transition to the next section of Christian history. So we had the ancient church was our first part. 
Then when Constantine came in, we started this section of history of the church called the Imperial Church. Now, we're still really in the Imperial Church age. It hasn't gone away. The, definitely the effects of it and the influence of it still reside to this day. But the next period of, of history we'll get to after these four that we're going to talk about is the Middle Ages. And there's a lot of stuff that's going to go on then. And there's some crazy stuff that's going to go on then. Um, so that's where we're headed. That's where we're going. I looked ahead also just to see, I kind of got curious about how much longer this book was going to go. And if you'll remember, when I started this study, I told you that I was going to continue and finish the book and that it was going to take us up right to the doorstep of the Protestant Reformation. So looking ahead, next week would be part 21. So we're actually 21 chapters into the book. And the, church, and the book has a total of 36. So if my math is right, that's 15 chapters to go. Does that mean we'll have exactly 15 lessons going forward? I don't know that for sure. It could be. Again, some of these chapters are really, really long and some are really short. So there's the potential that a couple could be combined or there may even be some that are so long we have to split them. But somewhere in that 15-ish range is about how much longer we've got to go with this study. So just looking ahead, you're probably going to get about 15 more lessons or so. And what happens after that, I'm not sure. I haven't decided yet whether I want to jump. There's actually, this is volume one of a book that's got two volumes. And the second volume is going to go from the Protestant Reformation forward to modern days. Again, I don't know if we'll get into that. I just haven't made the decision to commit to that yet. But we'll see. Regardless of that, we're going to continue on for several more weeks. We're definitely going to go be going into the fall. And I hope you'll continue to be a part of this. It's something I wanted to do, whether anybody listens to it but me. I, it doesn't matter. I wanted to have this as something that would be able to be available for anyone that wanted to do a study of church history, but particularly kind of a something you could listen to to go along with this book if you ever happen to be reading the book, uh, some commentary on it. So if nothing else, I've got it for myself. I hope you're enjoying it. I do hear every now and then somebody will come up and just tell me, that they've enjoyed the study and that means a lot i do i'm not fishing for compliments don't get me wrong but it does it's nice just to know that somebody's listening so thank you again for being a part of this hope that you have just a very very blessed week that god is with you and that you continue to have passion about the study of our faith both the history of it and more importantly the active practice of it today god bless you and i hope to get to talk to you again next week